This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Silence by Endo Shusaku. The most famous work of Japan's most famous Christian author, Silence is the tale of a man who loses his faith in the face of the Edo period's harsh anti-Christian measures. At the center of the story is a haunting meditation on the nature of faith and on how, or even if, Christianity can fit into Japanese society. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. to the History of Japan podcast, episode 158, Best of Frenemies, part 4. We left things off with the end of the Sino-Japanese War. China, defeated, was driven from Korea and forced to recognize Korea's independence, which in practice meant that Korea was now a Japanese protectorate. One of Japan's opening moves in the war had been to march on Seoul and seize control of the Korean royal court, and while the war was still raging, the Japanese in Seoul hastened to solidify their hold. They accomplished this by forcing the Korean court to adopt the first in a series of measures collectively referred to as the Gabo reforms. Gabo, by the way, is another one of those sexagenary cycle names, the year of the wooden horse, or 1894. The Koreans were also forced to sign on to a series of garrison agreements allowing Japanese troops to be stationed in Korea, just in case anybody was under the mistaken impression that these reforms were voluntary. The man responsible for helping to draft this reform bill was one Otori Keisuke, who has actually cropped up in our story before in a very limited capacity. As a young man, he had been an officer in the Tokugawa shogunate's modern French-style infantry, and had fought in the Boshin War. Most notably, he'd been among the hardliners to flee to Aizu with Matsudaira Katamori, and had helped to direct the doomed defense of that territory against the onrushing armies of the Meiji Emperor. After Aizu fell to the Imperial Japanese Army, Otori Keisuke fled north where he joined up with the Ezo Republic in Hokkaido, and met defeat there as well. Having discovered that a military career did not hold that much promise for him, clearly, Otori went into retirement for a few years, before being invited by the Meiji government to resume a degree of involvement in politics. He did so primarily by working on land development and reclamation in Hokkaido, but in the 1890s he took up a series of ambassadorial postings as well. He just so happened to be the man on the scene as Japan's ambassador to Korea in 1894, and so was in a position, once the war began, to start offering advice to the Koreans on how to reform their government 
now that they had been liberated from the yoke of China. Now, I don't really want to get too deep into the content of these reforms because they're kind of dry and, frankly, pretty easy to sum up. The Japanese tried to force through an equivalent of the Meiji Restoration at gunpoint and to modernize Korea by ripping down many of its old institutions. Sure, the Koreans had not been consulted as to whether or not they actually wanted this, but I suppose a man who had been on the losing side of the same fight in Japan, Otori Keisuke, was well-positioned to explain to them how futile resistance to the new way of doing things really was. Most notably, these reforms included attacks on the privileges of the Yangban class, the elite class of civil and military aristocrats who had run the Korean government by and for themselves for nearly a thousand years, stretching back to the days of the Goryeo dynasty. Yangban privilege was seen by the Japanese as a relic in the same way that samurai privilege had been, and as the odious inverse of one of the darker features of the Korean kingdom, an extensively stratified system of indentured servitude that saw a huge chunk of the population bonded into forced labor for their entire lives. Now, this reform in particular, the leveling of class distinctions, was not completely unpopular with the Koreans themselves. There were more than a few Koreans who celebrated the removal of the privileges of what they viewed as a parasitic class, even if they did not celebrate the place those reforms had come from. The fact that the Japanese had been the ones to force this change on Korea was not ideal, but hey, you take what you can get. What created some real controversy, however, was the decision by the Japanese to reform the way the Korean government operated. The Japanese abolished the old Chinese-style state bureaucracy and replaced it with a new cabinet system modeled on their own. Ostensibly, this was to rationalize Korean administration, but also this was an excellent opportunity to place pro-Japanese Korean ministers at the heads of every government department. Now, this gets us into one of the areas of modern Korean history that is not very popular to discuss among the Koreans themselves. Even though it's pretty clear that most Koreans were not thrilled to be marching to the beat of Japan's drum, a substantial number chose to collaborate anyway, either because they believed that the benefits of working with the Japanese outweighed the costs, or because they felt they simply had no other options the members of the new cabinet tasked with implementing the Gabo reforms were, depending on how you choose to use the term, among Japan's first collaborators in Korea. As we will see, they will not be the last. Decidedly not interested in collaboration, on the other hand, was Queen Min. Yes, she had been prepared to work with and learn from the Japanese, but that was supposed to have been, at worst, a student-teacher relationship, not a colonial power dependency relationship. Queen Min became increasingly vocal in her dissatisfaction with the new order, and even began making noises about a closer relationship with Russia to counterbalance Japan's growing influence. And in a weird example of petty politics playing itself out, that meant all of a sudden the Daewon goon began favoring closer ties with Japan. If Queen Min didn't like it, it had to be a good idea. At the time, the most powerful Japanese figure in Korea was Miura Goro, 
the Japanese ambassador in Seoul. Miura was a Choshu samurai who, like Yamagata Aritomo, had begun his career serving in the Kiheitai militia and fighting against the Tokugawa. Like Yamagata, he subscribed to the idea that whoever controlled Korea would, in essence, control Japan, and thus that any methods were acceptable when it came to ensuring that Japan was the one calling the shots in Korea. So Goro reached out to the Daewon Goon to plot one of the most infamous events in Korean history. Now, as has happened before in our story, certain elements of the Korean military were more loyal to Queen Min, others were more loyal to the Daewon Goon. One of the elements loyal to the Daewon Goon, and I'm sure I'm saying this wrong, was the Holyon Dae, a new regiment of the Korean army that had been established in 1895 as part of the Gabo reforms, and which was patterned off of the regiments of the Imperial Japanese Army. Its loyalty to the Daewon Goon stemmed mostly from the fact that while its organization was all newfangled in Japanese, its officers had been pulled entirely from the ranks of the old Korean army. The Daewon Goon, at Miorogoro's request, began reaching out to the Hoyeondae officers, telling them that Queen Min was planning to betray Korea to the Russians, and that she had to be stopped at any cost. On October 8, 1895, elements of the Hoyeondae, led by the commander of the 1st Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Wu Hongseom, surrounded and attacked the Royal Palace. The Royal Guards Regiment attempted to hold them off for a time, but being Royal Guards, they had not been top priority for the best weapons and recruits, since they were not expected to serve in the field. The Hoyeondae threw them back and opened the gates of the palace. In slipped a group of Japanese nationals. They referred to as ronin sometimes in the sources, but that term is an anachronism here, since it refers to masterless samurai, and the samurai as a class don't really exist anymore. It's better to think of them as a squad of Japanese recruited unofficially for a black op. They weren't officially Japanese Imperial Army troops, in fact, many of them were affiliated with the Yakuza, and as a result, Miura Goro and the Japanese government could deny any official involvement in what was about to happen. We actually have an account of the inside of the palace once the Japanese got in, because a Russian architect working for the Korean government, Alexei Seredin Sabatin, happened to be inside the building at the time. In his letters back home to the motherland, which were discovered by a Korean archivist early in the 21st century, he wrote, quote, The courtyard where the Queen's Wing was located was filled with Japanese, perhaps as many as 20 or 25 men. They were dressed in peculiar gowns and were armed with sabers, some of which were openly visible. While some Japanese troops were rummaging around every corner of the palace and the various annexes, others burst into the queen's wing and threw themselves upon the women they found there. I continued to observe the Japanese turning things inside out in the queen's wing. Two Japanese grabbed one of the court ladies, pulled her out of the house, and ran down the stairs dragging her along behind them. Moreover, one of the Japanese repeatedly asked me in English, Where is the queen? Point the queen out to us. While passing by the main throne hall, I noted it was surrounded shoulder to shoulder by a wall of Japanese soldiers and officials and Korean mandarins, but what was happening there was unknown to me. End quote. 
Eventually, the Japanese succeeded in locating Queen Min, at which point they stabbed her to death. The assassination of Queen Min provoked a wave of anti-Japanese feeling across Korea, made all the worse when the Japanese government attempted to put a band-aid on the incident by prosecuting the Japanese nationals involved, as all parties accused were found not guilty by reason of insufficient evidence, even though Miragoro in particular more or less copped to masterminding the whole assassination on the stand. So that really did not do a good job of making people feel better. There would, however, be some small measure of revenge for those wronged by the assassination. Crown Prince Sun Jong, son of Queen Min and King Gojong, would eventually succeed in tracking down the commander of the Hoyonde, Wu Hyeom-seom, in exile in Tokyo. Sun Jong arranged for the news of Wu's location to make its way to Koreans living in Tokyo, and in 1903, one of those Koreans stabbed Wu to death. However, that bit of sweet vengeance did not do anything for the far more immediate concerns of King Gojong. His wife, of whom he was deeply enamored, was now dead. The Japanese had proven how far they were willing to go to remove those who could be considered inexpedient for their plans. In a panic, Gojong began to conspire with his ministers to escape the Japanese for the only power willing to stand up to Japan over Korea, Russia. It took a few months to coordinate, but in early 1896, King Gojong disappeared from the royal palace for a short while. He then reappeared inside the Russian embassy in Seoul and announced that he would now be operating a sort of court in exile in his own capital city. The king would now rule from inside the Russian embassy, surrounded by Russian guards. Gojong's escape produced something of a seismic shock in the Korean government. Pro-Russian and conservative ministers turned on colleagues seen as too pro-Japanese, and most of that pro-Japanese collaborator cabinet I mentioned before, well, they were quite literally ripped to pieces by an angry street mob of Koreans who took the opportunity to get some revenge for Queen Min. Meanwhile, Gojong set about repealing most of the Gabo reforms in an effort to remove as much Japanese influence from the Korean government as possible. He also signed new commercial treaties with both Russia and the United States, hoping to increase their power in Korea as a counterweight to Japan. Out in the provinces, Gojong's flight to the Russian embassy created a great deal of instability, leading to a series of uprisings by local Yangban. These righteous armies, as their leaders often termed them, were incarnations of one of the most traditionally Confucian of historical phenomenon, aristocratically-led peasant uprisings aimed at ejecting the unvirtuous from power. These uprisings would be a semi-regular feature of the final years of Korean independence, these ones in particular, during 1895, were by far the largest. However, those involved did not have any modern weapons, and as a result, the Japanese made short work of them. For the next year, the Korean kingdom was run out of a foreign embassy inside of its own capital, but functionally, the kingdom was powerless. Gojong could do whatever he liked to try and bring Russia in as a counterweight to the Japanese, but the bottom line was that the Japanese were now garrisoned in Korea, and until they could be forcibly ejected, 
there was a hard limit on how much the Koreans could accomplish. Gojong also came under sustained criticism from a group of increasingly vocal Korean nationalists, who accused him of going too far in the other direction, of selling out Korea to the Russians in order to avoid selling it out to the Japanese. The members of this group, who called themselves the Independence Club, began pushing for a new course for Korea. The only way for Korea to survive was to establish itself as an equal in the community of nations. No more tributary relationships or unequal alliances with China, no more scraping at the feet of the Japanese or trying to cut protection deals with Russia. Korea's doors would be open to anyone who wanted to trade, and the money from that trade would be used for a program of crash modernization just like the Japanese had done, with a focus on buying weapons to defend the kingdom's independence. The Independence Club spread its message through a rather unusual, by Korean standards, approach. The distribution of newspapers, in which the editorials and features all promoted its views. Thus, it was able to build a groundswell of popular opinion in favor of its proposals. By 1897, even the king had to take notice. Caving into pressure from the Independence Club, King Gojong announced that he would leave the Russian embassy and return to the royal palace, though he would still be protected by Russian guards, assigned to protect him from the Japanese. He would also take the crucial step that Independence Club activists had long promoted. There was one thing, they said, that Korea had to do to assert its equality with Japan and China as a nation. Japan and China were ruled by emperors, but Korea's ruler was just a king. If Korea was going to chart its own destiny, that could not be allowed to continue. So, on October 13, 1897, the Korean kingdom was declared no more. In its place, a new Korean empire was established. King Gojong took on the new title of emperor and a new name, Gwangmu, meaning warrior of light. Now, to avoid confusion, I'm going to keep calling him Emperor Gojong instead of Emperor Gwangmu, because I already throw a lot of names at you. Queen Min, meanwhile, was posthumously elevated to the title of Empress. The Korean Empire's founding represented, to a certain extent, a period of revival for Korea, helped by the fact that in 1898 that arch-conservative the Daewon Goon passed away. The government began modernizing its armed forces and encouraged commerce and industry throughout its territory, now that its leadership was no longer divided against itself. It also began engaging in legal reforms, decreasing even further the power of Yangban landholders, and updating its land surveys to more efficiently tax its territory. However, the reforms implemented by the new emperor faced two ultimately insurmountable challenges. First, while Korean nationalism was already growing, particularly in the face of brazen Japanese actions like the assassination of Queen Min, that did not necessarily translate to growing attachment to the existing dynasty. Indeed, in some quarters, the royal family was blamed for letting things get this bad. Certainly, Gojong did not help himself in this case. Rather than inviting in the growing class of Korean activists and trying to give them a stake in his new empire, he became jealous of their attacks on his imperial prerogatives. Eventually, Gojong would order the suppression of groups like the Independence Club for daring to criticize him. 
Second, and in many ways more problematic, the Japanese were already in the door at this point. They were already entrenched in Korea. While Korea was still technically independent and technically set its own rules, nobody doubted that if push came to shove, the Japanese could easily impose their will on their upstart neighbors. This fact became all the clearer in the early 20th century, when Japan succeeded in sweeping the last opposing force in Korea from the board. One of these days, I'd like to do a longer series on the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, because I do think it's one of the less well-known but rather important moments of the 20th century. For our purposes, though, it can be summed up pretty neatly. Japan, much to the shock of many an observer, ended up defeating the mighty Russian Empire and driving it from Manchuria and Korea, and in the process, the last effective counterweight to Russian influence in Korea was removed. And here we have the central problem. The Korean Empire was a bold, though honestly kind of late, attempt to assert and defend Korea's independence, but its successor failure was completely dependent on external events. Once Japan developed a monopoly of influence in Korea, the Korean Empire was fundamentally doomed. After the war, the Japanese began securing Korea through a variety of diplomatic maneuverings. The Empire of Korea was declared a protectorate, essentially a puppet state of the Empire of Japan, and one by one the other powers with embassies in Korea were convinced to shut them down. As Korea's protector, Japan would now be handling all of Korea's foreign relations. This, of course, basically shut down Korea's modernization movement, since the Koreans could now acquire modern goods only from Japan, and the Japanese were not really prepared to sell the Koreans anything that did not fit Japan's vision of what Korea should be. For example, I don't know, guns. The Japanese also took control of Korea's cabinet, first appointing pro-Japanese Koreans, and then obtaining the right by treaty to appoint, without the emperor's approval, Japanese nationals to head up the Korean government. Emperor Gojong made one last bid for independence. Without telling the Japanese, he dispatched representatives to the 1907 Hague Convention to plead for Western recognition of Korea's independence. However, the Western powers were not really that interested in antagonizing the Japanese, especially now that the knives were starting to come out in Europe, and everyone from Paris to Moscow was anxious to see where Tokyo came down once the fighting started. Besides, frankly, they did not trust the Koreans. So, the representatives of the West turned them away. Japanese officials in Korea were incensed by this show of independence, and, with the intercession of all of their allies in government, forced Gojong to abdicate. In 1907, Gojong stepped aside in favor of his son Sunjong, who would be Korea's last emperor. Sunjong's rule was ill-omened from the start. The Japanese used the ascension of this relative political novice as an opportunity to extract yet more concessions from Korea and to take one of the most important steps in seizing control of the country, dissolving Korea's army on the pretext that its maintenance was too expensive, and after all, it was unnecessary, since Korea's friends in Japan were now prepared to defend the peninsula. And of course, 
This removed the ability of the Koreans to resist further Japanese intervention militarily. Sunjong's reign continued for three years, primarily because, back in Tokyo, the ministers of the government were divided over what Korea's future should be. A faction of hardline annexationists, led by father of the Imperial Japanese Army, Yamagata Aritomo, wanted to complete Korea's incorporation into Japan and rule it directly. However, an opposition group led by Ito Hirabumi, author of Japan's constitution, wanted to maintain the status quo with a Japanese-controlled Korean puppet government used as a cover to make Japan's reforms more palatable to the Koreans. Ito's approach was the dominant one until 1909 because, after the Russo-Japanese War, he was appointed to the new position of resident general in Korea, essentially Japan's chief government officer in its new protectorate. He was the one who directed the effort to force Gojong to abdicate in 1907, fearing that Gojong's continued independent streak could put the protectorate at risk and strengthen the hand of the annexationists. However, in 1909, Ito Hirabumi was removed from the proverbial chessboard. In Harbin, the central city of Manchuria, Ito was catching a train on the way back from a meeting with the Russian representative in charge of the Tsar's holdings in China. Waiting for him on the platform was An Jung-gun, a Korean of good Yangban background. An had left Korea after the establishment of Japan's protectorate and moved to Manchuria. The interlocking network of Japanese and Russian interests, combined with the weakening power of the Qing dynasty in general, made Manchuria a breeding ground for banditry and a safe haven for Koreans dedicated to fighting Japan by force. At the time An joined up, these guerrilla bands were pretty small. They would continue to grow, however, and Manchuria would eventually become home to most anti-Japanese Korean groups, including that of Kim Il-sung. When Ito himself came to Manchuria, An seized the moment. As Ito stood on the platform in Harbin's railway station, An approached him, pulled out a pistol, and shot him three times. Ito would not linger long before dying of his wounds. An was promptly arrested by Russian authorities on site, Harbin being an area of primarily Russian influence, and then turned over to the Japanese. An insisted that he should be treated as a prisoner of war and that he held a commission in a legitimate army of resistance, which was kind of true his guerrilla band had made him a general. He also laid out 15 charges against Ito, which ranged from the relatively accurate to the completely ludicrous. In complete form, those charges are that Ito had led the effort to assassinate Queen Min, true-ish, Ito had not directed the plot but was likely aware of it, that he had dethroned Emperor Gojong, true, that he had forced unequal treaties on Korea, that he had massacred innocent Koreans, that he had usurped the Korean government, that he had plundered Korea's industry and natural resources, that he had disbanded the Korean army, obstructed the education of Koreans, banned Koreans from studying abroad, confiscated Korean textbooks, and that he had spread the rumor that Koreans wanted to be a protectorate of Japan. All of this is true. That he had deceived Japan's emperor into thinking Koreans wanted to be part of China, which is iffy, it depends on how naive you think Emperor Meiji was, 
that he had broken the peace of Asia, which I guess is fair, though it's not like it was just him personally. And finally, that Ito had assassinated Emperor Meiji's father, Emperor Komei, back in 1867, which is ludicrous. Komei died of disease. Naturally, once the Japanese had him, they had on executed, hanged like a common criminal instead of shot like he wanted. Today, An Jung-gun is considered something of a folk hero in Korea. The South Korean government named a warship after him, and one of the most famous movies ever made by the North Korean government is called An Jung-gun Shoots Ito Hirabumi. There are statues of him across South Korea, and the Chinese government has erected a monument to him in Harbin, something the Japanese were naturally not pleased with. In the short term, the assassination had far more dire consequences for Korea. Now without leadership, opposition to the annexationists in the Japanese government collapsed overnight. The year after Ito's death, Yamagata Aritomo was able to push a treaty to annex Korea through the Japanese Diet. Emperor Sunjong was forced to accede to it, though he refused to actually sign it. That role, the role of signing over Korea's independence, went to a Japanese-appointed prime minister named Yi Wanyong, who received a peerage in the Japanese government for his trouble. On August 22nd, the Korean Empire and independent Korea ceased to exist. Korea was now, legally, a part of Japan. The imperial clan soldiered on living in their palace in Seoul, a relic of a time now past. Gojong would die in 1919 inside what had once been his palace, either of natural causes, or if you're inclined to suspicion of poison at the hands of a Japanese government that did not trust him to behave himself. Sunjong would soldier on until 1926. Their descendants still live in Korea and will encounter a few of them down the line. In fact, the former imperial family is still quite successful. Its current leadership is somewhat disputed, but the common consensus candidate for family head has truly embraced modern Korea and is now a high-ranking executive with Samsung, quite a departure from the old days of stern neo-Confucian anti-merchant attitudes. From this point onward, however, the royal descendants of the House of Yi are going to be far less important to our story. Korea's monarchy is dead. Next time, we'll move on to what is commonly treated as the blackest time in Korean history, its 35 years as a direct colony of Japan. I say next time rather than next week, however, because for the next week I'm going to be spending some time with my future in-laws in fabulous Emerald Isle, North Carolina, taking in the sun, reading some books, and maybe even watching this newfangled Star Trek movie even though I hear they don't even go back in time to San Francisco to save the whales. Anyway, in two weeks' time, we'll pick things back up with the age of colonial Korea. That's all for this week, though. Thank you very much for listening. To find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in two weeks' time. For Best of Frenemies, Part 5.